Welcome to the Binge Essentials Podcast. I'm your host, David Rocha, and joining me as always is Romeo Mora. Romeo, do you have your clean Xbox? Yes, I do. Well, the reason I asked Romeo that he has his clean Xbox is because we're going to be talking about Six Feet Under. Six Feet Under is an American drama television series created by Alan Ball that aired on HBO from 2001 to 2005 for five seasons. The series depicts the lives of the Fisher family who run a funeral home in Los Angeles along with their friends and lovers. The show is a conventional family drama deal Dealing with such issues as interpersonal relationships, infidelity, and religion, and focusing on the topic of death, which it explores on personal and philosophical levels. The ensemble drama stars Peter Krause, Michael C. Hall, Francis Conroy, Lauren Ambrose, Freddie Rodriguez, Matthew St. Patrick, and Rachel Griffiths as the central characters. Joining us to talk about Six Feet Under, returning for the second time, is Jamie Yinks. Jamie, how's it going? Oh, it is going great. I'm super excited to talk about my favorite show of all time. Yes, and when we originally wanted you to be on the show you did say you wanted to do six feet under and we kind of steered you towards a different direction we did the good place instead which is a great episode if you guys haven't had a chance to listen to because me and romeo we really wanted to make sure that we watched this show from start to finish that way we can have a very fruitful discussion because it's been noted for since the conclusion of the series this is one of the better shows that hbo has ever produced so yeah that's why we're just super pumped to have you here and we're super Super excited that you're ready for this. So what inspired you to start watching Six Feet Under? If I remember correctly, I was visiting my aunt and she had HBO and casually was watching an episode as my cousins and I were getting back in late night one night. And it just caught my attention. And I, I think it was somewhere in the beginning parts of season one. And she said, yeah, it was a really, a really good new show. And uh, I think it wasn't until maybe the next year that I kind of caught up and, and got watching it and finished it live. But it is a difficult but very easy show to watch. So it grabbed my attention. And then I think maybe I paused on it a little bit just because of some of the heaviness that does come with it. Yeah, so you're obviously, this is, was 2001. Kind of crazy how old this show is. It is. Like occasionally you sort of catch yourself like so you, they're using the old like, no, Kia flip phones, you're like, oh, wait. <laughs> yeah, you, you even see the uh, fax machine get used. Right. Times. I think what's really impressive, though, is that other than maybe different cell phones, things like that, it's remarkably undated for 20 years old. You know what? That is a point that I was actually planning to make later on in the recording. I was going to say it just doesn't feel outdated at all. It's so strange and yet somehow comforting <laughs> that it still feels as relevant today as it was 20 years ago. And I think the reason why, at least in my opinion is because the universal theme is grief. Most shows, they tend to be very topical and timely where everyone's going to lose someone and we're all going to have some type of similar reaction. And that was the main focus of the show. It actually worked to their benefit because you can watch this 20 years from now and feel it's still being timely. So did you ever catch the promos for Six Feet Under before actually sitting down and watching it? I don't think so. I'm pretty sure I learned about it first by watching with my aunt. I may have seen promos later for the first season, but not before it came out. HBO did this wonderful job, especially um, after his big Golden Globe wins, I believe, in season one. Season two and on, they had these really artistic promos, sort of hinting what's going to happen in each season. They were all set to different um, songs. Season three was um, Coldplay's A Blood Rush to the Head. Season four promo was Nina Simone's Feeling Fine. The last season was set to 
see as Breathe Me. Well, it's 2001. You see the show. It's in the middle of the first season. So you have to circle back and watch that pilot. Did you keep watching the series before you circled back to the pilot or? Immediately went right back to the pilot. Okay. How'd you do that? I had to rip it off of LimeWire. <laughs> nice. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So you watched the pilot. What was it about it that got you hooked? I think immediately. Every time you meet one of the main characters, immediately in the first minute, you know what you're getting into with these people. I don't think I've ever seen a show or any sort of medium where the characters are introduced in such a dynamic way immediately. When we meet uh, Ruth, you kind of see she's kind of off her rocker a little bit. And when she's telling the kids that Nathaniel had passed away, I think the quote is like, she's like, there's been an accident. The new hearse is ruined or totaled or something. Mm -hmm. Your father's dead and the pot roast is ruined. And like she adds, the pot roast is ruined. Like (laughs) You get an understanding of that she's a compassionate person, but she's really self-absorbed right away. And then you meet Nate and he's having sex with Brenda in a janitor's closet at the airport, like just met on the plane. Like David is in the middle of a viewing when he, I think when he finds out and he has to go finish the viewing as a funeral director and, and he's there for everyone and puts that face on, even though you just learned his father and mentor just died. Immediately you start to get to know who these people are. And, and well, the one I can't forget is Claire. She right. was meth for the first time, the first like three minutes that you see her. And then she gets a phone call that her dad's dead and she has to deal with it while high on meth. That's what sucked me in is that you immediately get to know these characters and have a really strong framework of how they're going to fill out and how they're going to develop. But they're never really boxed in by that. All these people progress. It's interesting because people you really didn't like at first, you may end up really liking and vice versa. Right. What I liked about it as well was that um, you do get a sense of all these characters and also get the sense that everyone is somehow uptight in their own way or very sensitive or you have to like, you have yeah. to watch what you say around them. So you already feel that binding family tension that just kind of sticks with this family for many seasons really and how it affects their interpersonal relationships with other people on the show and I think the show maybe's intent was saying that Nate is the main character and you're kind of seeing all of this through his eyes Mm -hmm. a little bit uh, when you start the series so it's almost kind of setting you up to make you understand as to why Nate when he got the opportunity moved far away from the family because everyone is just so emotionally stunty I mean he's emotionally stunted too but they just don't know how to emote or express or even have a normal conversation with each other yeah and i love how they're sort of figuring out who their father was so like that's the whole exploration of that first season is the relationship that they think they had with nathaniel versus what other people remember of that relationship and i just love the dynamic that you automatically see between the three siblings because clearly David and Nate are closer. Then you have Claire, who's like the youngest, who always felt like she's the forgotten one. And you pick up on those dynamics really quickly. And it's an interesting choice, too, to meet these characters on their worst day. And with all these things, it becomes unequivocal that the way that the Fishers are dealing with the death of Nathaniel, they are really horrendous at doing it, despite being Mm -hmm. professionals that help other people grieve with loss. This weird, like, paradox where they're so good at helping other people do it, but they're just so incapable of dealing with not just loss, but also having meaningful relationships with people when they're alive. I think like halfway through season six, Brenda tells Nate that something like, uh, you know, if you didn't know your dad, you're never going to, you know, when he's alive, you're never going to know him when he's dead because he's like trying to like figure out who his dad was. That was always really poignant. That, that always hits me when I get to that episode. One more unique thing about the pilot that I noticed in terms of how it compares to the rest of the series, it's the commercials. I 
when I first saw the commercials, I was thinking, is this something that's going to be a reoccurring thing all through season mm-hmm. one? And it wasn't. Fortunately, it was just in the first episode. Oh, but they did it with the finale, too. Nate had a little commercial while Claire was waking up before she left. He was oh, like, that's right. Little, yeah, so it, that's the only time they ever mirror it, which is kind of cool. And the commercials, it's kind of funny because you think about it and you're like, oh, yeah, there does need to be a way about how you market these funeral products right. towards funeral homes. And I'm sure it's not as glamorizing as the show made it out to be. Which was smart on their point, at least from my perspective, because we had a fun way of learning about these products, which become a regular part of their daily conversations within the show without having to have this long exposition thing, like what yeah. they're using. Now, like uh, Rico's kid coming and be like, hey, daddy, what's this? And he, he explains right. it or something dumb like that, you know? <laughs> so you already more or less pointed out when you decided you're in it for the long haul. So was there a moment that made you decide that you're in it for the long haul? Yeah, I, I probably even just watching the little bit that I did uh, at my aunt's house. I knew that was, oh, this is a show I'm going to watch. If anything about the premiere that I that really made me understand that this is going to be up my alley was when Ruth tells the kids at Nathaniel's funeral that she had an affair. And you see this weird dynamic of her like making things about her. And for me, that was like, oh, I can I can see this in a lot of people I know. Right. And so mm-hmm. something that pulled me in, like that I was a little bit invested into, not just for some sort of entertainment value, but this would probably be a meaningful show for me. And mm-hmm. it became that. That's for sure. I think it's time to get into some of these characters. So which main character would you like to get into first? You kind of have to get into Nate first. He's the main character to start the show. I don't think he is the main character of the whole show. I also think he's probably one of the greatest TV characters ever. Oh, interesting. I think he's very, very likable, but I think he's very well defined. And they do a good job at making him still mysterious. I like Peter Krause. Yeah, he originally auditioned for David. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, he he auditioned for David and then he was brought back to audition for Nate. At that time, he was just kind of like, it's probably gonna be one of those things where they like you, but they don't know where you fit and it's just all gonna fall through anyways. You're not even gonna get a part. But uh, yeah, he wanted up getting the part as Nate. On, I can't even picture him as David. It just no, no. kind of blows my mind because he just sells this character like this someone who's like good looking but kind of confusing and like he wants to be tapped in with his emotions and he wants people, everyone to feel feelings, you know, and not, uh-huh. not be so stunted. But at the same time, he himself is very closed in, very uninviting. And then when he does let out all those emotions, sometimes it's in the right moments, but there's other times where he's like at work and he gets mad at people and he's like yelling at people towards a grieving family for not grieving the right way or something like that. It's just like, dude, calm down. You're at work. <laughs> he's a very kind person, but he's very short fused. Yeah. And I think Peter Krause just sells that. Uh, mm-hmm. He sells it really well. He was a perfect fit for this character. And I think with the character, he's obviously anchored by the emotional capabilities and capacities that he can have by his family and like the lack of them showing emotion to one another all his whole life it seems like he's like stretching out that anchor line as far as he can go and he's just circling around where he could go and he's always on the outskirts of where his family is with trying to feel things and show emotion and tap into something deeper or something different he can't let go right that's why he's tried to leave the family and and be in portland and, and then when he comes back he feels like he's like back in that vortex and for him i think obviously the show starts off with focusing on him and him staying there and him being the oldest it's kind of hard not to think of him as being the main character maybe season four it becomes a lot more about david 
And season three and season five are more about Claire. Yeah, because for me, like, the most frustrating part with Nate, and you cannot talk about Nate without talking about Lisa and Brenda, because their storylines are just so intertwined. The first blow up or implosion between Nate and Brenda, it was justified why Nate needed to leave. But then the second time, it's just so messed up. <laughs> and I and I sort of get like, that's how they're writing the character, because they pretty much set this up that he's having a bit of a midlife crisis and that final season. But I just can't get over his treatment of his partners. He's like simultaneously a very loving person. But again, like he's abusive in ways. too. he's a very complex character, especially when it comes to romantic relationships. He just gets so caught up in trying to please everybody yeah. without making himself happy. And he leaves so that he can he himself could be happy. But I guess as he sort of looks back on those years, he comes to sort of realize, oh, I actually maybe I wasn't happy during that whole time I was in Seattle. He goes there and he gets that co-op job thinking that it's just not going to be a just a short-term job. And he ends up working there for many years. There's these things about his life that he didn't think that they would go the way they went. And then he moves back to LA because he's doing it for the family. He, uh-huh. It's supposed to be like this big selfless act, but this selfless act is, is just like tormenting him without him even realizing that it's tormenting him. Then he thinks he's doing the right thing by being with Lisa and helping raise this child. But really it's like, no, man, this is actually the wrong decision. Uh, you may think that you're doing the right thing, but you're actually not only making yourself self worse but you're making lisa feel worse you're making her feel inadequate yeah inadequate and she tries to be she tries to present herself as like this spiritual person but that certainly gets diminished because of the presence of being not only in just being with nathaniel but also just living i think in los angeles and working for a big shot hollywood producer who's very over dramatic played by Catherine (laughs) o'hara he tries to be caring and nurturing and all of these things but between lisa and brenda and him and even maggie to a point well he wasn't with maggie long enough to do this to her he ends up kind of destroying them piece by piece in the end he still got maggie pretty good too she pretty much hauled ass out of la ruth helps though when ruth calls and gets that closure she needed she incidentally helps maggie get that closure with saying reminding her nate was very happy and you were very happy weren't you Mm -hmm. yeah a lot of those big decisions like breaking up with brenda and deciding to marry lisa all happen during these big crucial moments he decided to marry lisa after his first aneurysm bursts and then after his other medical scare he decides you know what brenda we're over <laughs> i'm like what the hell and he He's decides like, to marry brenda after um when hoyt killed himself and he yeah. goes to brenda and say let's get married yeah you're right like he's a great complicated character but there are times where i myself hated him he's taking like all the wrong opportunities to realize what makes him happy and he selfishly does this without any consideration of the people he's affecting i agree i think he obviously like all people there's a give and take and sometimes he takes right. a little bit more than he gives i would say he gives more on the the minute things and he takes right. more on the big things and i would say that brenda and lisa especially lisa they right. bombed on to him and lisa kind of trapped him too and and you you don't realize david was mentioning how when you know we had this perception of him maybe being happier in seattle he obviously isn't when you go up there and they're bringing the body back we meet lisa for the first time and claire 
comes, he didn't have such a great life there. His relationship with Lisa is not what Lisa wants. And even though sometimes they sleep together, Lisa says she's okay with it, but really isn't. To be honest, I think Lisa's just an awful character. I mean, she's a great character for TV, but I think her as a person, as a character, I think she's just like a train wreck. Oh, 100%. He did a lot of damage to Nate, just like Brenda did too. It was very toxic. All the relationships were very toxic. But I will say like in terms, Brenda's a complicated character in herself. Like their relationship deteriorated because lack of communication and she had her own issues. But I feel like their second go when they got married and correct me if I'm wrong, Brenda was actually trying to work on the relationship. And to me, Nate only has one thing. Instead of confronting whatever is bothering him, his first instinct is to run. And it's always running to somebody else. Because I think there was a possible thing with the rabbi he was sort of becoming friends with. Rabbi that, Ari. Yeah, because if she was perceptive, something would have happened. But she's like, no, I'm a rabbi. This will never work. There's boundaries. Which, oddly enough, that is the first one in, in Nathaniel's life that set clear boundaries with him. Yeah, I agree. I do like how uh, out of all the family members, he's the one who seems to be most connected with his emotions. He's not afraid to hug a family member. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like everyone else is kind of feels like, oh, I don't really want you to touch me. But he's actually like, he'll hug David. He even tells David, like, I love you, you know, like you're my brother and etc. Yeah, he's just more in tap with his emotions than Which, everyone else. It seems like through me, we get a sense of who Nathaniel was as a father. We see their father like through imaginary conversations that they're having with him in their own heads because clearly David takes after Ruth clearly in terms of how they bottle their emotions. If we were to get a glimpse of who Nathaniel was alive, I feel like Nate is that person. I get the feeling of that through the room in season mm-hmm. one where he's trying to figure out why his dad had this room but he's also learning things about his dad where it's like when he goes to the lady who um, has the greenhouse and he, he, she was giving him weed pay off the funeral and she was saying like oh your dad was hilarious you know he was such a great nice funny guy and stuff like that he's learning all these things he didn't really know about his dad before but they're also traits that Nate has yeah Nate can be funny Nate can be charismatic I think that was the, the most telling episode about how to me Nate takes after his dad a lot more than he does after Ruth. And there's also like this thing where he wants to, I guess, sort of follow the tradition that what his father did was give people like special arrangements for funerals, which of course Rico and David's like, no, no, this is a business. We can't be doing this. He did a funeral for like tamales or something like that. Which was great. I think all this talk about Nathaniel, it's interesting when you first start the show because he, he dies in the opening sequence. Right. And he's still a huge part of the show. I, he didn't do every episode, but, you know, he's there. And if I had to take a guess, I'd say probably 70% of the episodes. Yeah. Which Nathaniel is a weird character because we only spent like five minutes with him as himself. And then we get these weird facsimiles of how other people remember him through these fictionalized conversations. And how much is that based on the reality? Is this a clear representation of who this man really was? Because each of them have their own issues, including Ruth with Nathaniel. It filters in with those conversations, whether it's be like Nate's inability to face his quote-unquote legacy 
legacy is to continue on the business. David's repressed homosexuality at the time, especially for a season. Ruth with her guilt of her infidelity. And Claire always feeling like she was the forgotten child. I always question, do I really know this character? I don't know if you two got that same sense. I did for sure. And I don't think he is other than the few minutes that we see him in the beginning when he's alive. And then you see the memories that are clear memories of them. when right. they're going. But most of the time you see Nathaniel in the series, probably 90% of the time, it's of him not in some sort of memory, but him in these like vexations they have and they're imagining he's there telling them things. So we know we can't trust those because you see Nate telling Brenda at the end of the series, like, oh, I don't want this baby. You should just let it die. And then basically it's all your fears. Then she has this dream that she meets Nathaniel for the first time and they're like loving and, and they patch things up. So every time you see these like these kind of like hallucinations almost that the main characters are having, then you know you can't fully trust it. It's like their perception of who that person is. So David, you also said this is a conventional family drama. And on one hand, I think it's very much conventional and very dramatic, but it's very unconventional. Talking to your dead dad, talking to dead people that you're preparing for the funeral. I would never say it's a supernatural show, but it has something else. I don't know how to define it. You can see a character like daydreaming. He has some quick dialogue like, hey, pay attention. But here we're allowed to see what they're really thinking, which is refreshing at the time because now we get that a lot now. I mean, the closest TV show I can think of that has a similar conceit is Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, which she can sort of see what people are feeling through the songs that they're singing in their head, but she's able to see it in the, in the real world and we along with her. At the time, like, yeah, people say, oh, this is so unconventional. Now it is conventional in the sense that now almost everyone's doing what Six Feet Under is doing. My favorite, of course, is Claire singing about her pantyhose yeah, <laughs> and that stuffy corporate fair. office because I may or may not made up my own songs about doing some of the office work that I do. I thought you were going to say I may or may not wear pantyhose to work. No, no, no. <laughs> I can relate to those moments where I, I occasionally have the daydream, though I've never embarrassed myself like David has done multiple times. At the end, I guess it was the second to last episode when he's picking up Nate's body and he's just having a daydream. I guess he thinks he's seeing the red hooded uh, you right. know, whoever the guy was. I think the guy's name who, who assaulted him. He's like just daydreaming. And then this lady pulls a car next to her and next to him and says, what are you doing, you stupid cunt? And I'm just like, wow. wow. And he's just like <laughs> sitting there like and, and just like, oh, and he just like kind of waves his hand at them. And but yeah, the whole series, he really he's probably the one who daydreams most and see his dad the most, maybe because he's the one dealing with death more. He's dealing with the people more, perhaps. But I always thought that was interesting that he's not the person of at least the main characters that I would have guessed to have been that much of a daydreamer. Because I think he were presses the most, even more so than Ruth. He's trapped in a job that he felt like he had to do because Nate ran off to Seattle. Because we met him, and it was clear in the first few episodes, he wanted to be a lawyer. He never wanted to do this. In fact, he struggles at his job because he has trouble embalming and restoring um, the bodies that they intake. And then he's also dealing with being really religious, being part of this organization that basically hates who he is. So he's repressing who he is. And for him, that's the only outlet or escape. So to me, it makes sense why he daydreams the most. Let's go ahead and talk about David. Yeah, so like you mentioned, he's running Fisher 
sisters and sons because Nate's gone. I mean, the only other employee is Rico. He's been dating Keith for what seems like a decent amount of time, long uh-huh. enough to where, I mean, they're in a pretty serious relationship. I mean, he hides it from his family. I mean, he hides uh-huh. his homosexuality from his family. He hides it from his church. He even starts going to church with Keith for a little while before he goes back to his old church. And he becomes a deacon of all things <laughs> as well. Like in, in a lot of ways, even though he's gay, he's also very much conservative. I think it's even noted that he was a young Republican in college. Which throws me for a loop, even you saying it again. <laughs> <laughs> and and you just see it in the workplace. He's just very uptight. And I, and I also think he kind of resents Rico a little bit because I'm sure that from the outside, it may have looked like Nathaniel liked Rico more than he liked David. And Rico obviously is more skilled at the hand uh, as a mortician than David mm-hmm. will ever be. And to be fair, because Rico was hungry for that type of work. His father died when he was a teenager. Nathaniel did his family a favor. And for him, it's like, I need to repay this man for the kindness he showed his family. There was a talent in Rico that Nathaniel saw. Nathaniel and Rico had the father-son relationship. I think all of Nathaniel's children wish they had with him. And I think it's because Rico didn't ever have any of the negative aspects of Nathaniel. He only got the mentor or father figure. Yeah, so I think it was a little primrose there. That sort of fueled or either that translated to like, oh, Nathaniel won't love me because I am gay. I wouldn't call it self-hate, but there is some sort of pressure putting on himself. And I still see it even after he comes out to his entire family and sort of the whole church. I'm still debating if he did sort of come out to the church. Even after with Keith and he has the family that he could never have, I still feel like he still has those thoughts. I mean, of course, he's always going to have issues. And they kind of stepped away from this, but David and Keith were going to therapy. And then for a time, we realized Keith was going to therapy on his own, on his own. But David wasn't going to therapy on his own, even though he should have been, especially after the carjacking. He just needed to take care of himself a little bit better. Which I don't know how he got through that on his own. And maybe he did during that time period of that we don't see him after the series. Maybe he would occasionally have those nightmares again. Then it got to the point where it's like Keith probably told him, hey, you need to go to a therapist. You need help. Like you're scaring the kids. You're scaring me. Obviously, this isn't going to go away. It keeps coming back. So, but it seemed like they kind of like swept it up nice and neat by the series finale. They yeah. did. They should have explored his journey into getting better. They did a couple in like small ways. So, like Keith had the great idea. Well, you you can go to the prison and see him. So he realized how much of a clown this guy was and how awful he was and how like deranged he was and he didn't have power over him anymore. So I think that helped a little bit. But then when Nate's death kind of spiraled him out of control, that's he started seeing this guy again, or at least like a shadow of him or whatnot. I think halfway through the first or the last episode, rather, when you finally see when Claire is about to leave, they don't really tell you how long it's been. Now, Keith and David are occupying the house and the house is completely renovated. That feels like it's kind of like tying things up because he's changing his home, his family home. During the the montage at the end, they show him right in the very beginning, him showing Darnell how to drain a body. Now he's passing along this, what he does with his son. I don't think it did it in justice. I think you'd probably agree agree too right yeah it didn't wrap it up enough but i think they did an adequate enough job to for me at least to walk away thinking that you know what david's in a much better place they show him when you know in the montage when he finally passes away in the distant future they show him just being really content he's catching a football or something like that and i think for me that at least made me feel like he has progressed he has kind of put his demons to rest so to speak yeah you really hit the nail on the head by saying that renovating the house is sort of like that clean slate that he needs to kind 
kind of mm-hmm. um, take better control of his life and knowing that everything is, is, is symbolically by renovating the house that things are better now. He's able to move forward and put all the some of those traumatic experiences behind him. Having that shared experience with Darrell, it's like he didn't really, I mean, judging by the flash forward, it looks like he's not forcing Darrell into it. It's more like Darrell, like Rico was, curious and wanted to learn about it and fell in love with it. Whereas David, I think for David, it's more of like a love-hate relationship with it. He does, I think, in a sense, really does love the job. But it, it just got to the point for David, I think, that family legacy became very important to him. Like he could have very easily sold off Fisher and Diaz and he decided not to. He's like, no, this is mine and I'm going to build something for myself and my family. Even in the finale, when Rico's trying to buy them out or maybe the second to last episode, he says out loud, he's like, fine, I, I don't want to fight this either. He said, why should I fight for something that I've always been ambivalent about? But for him, it's always been like he kind of wants to do the family business, but he doesn't and he wanted to be a lawyer or whatnot. For David, whatever turned in his head, I guess it may be he just didn't want to walk away from that whole life in the house. And when Keith said, you know, we can buy it out. And that's when he turned and he needed Keith to kind of nudge him to say, you know, this is a great house. It's fantastic. We can we can change it. How do you feel about David and Keith's relationship? Because I have a unique take on it because for me being a gay man, it was kind of like revolutionary at the time to see that type of relationship on TV. But I still have my own reservations about the depiction of it. But before I give my take, I want to see how you guys sort of feel about that relationship for me it was my first introduction to a grown-up gay couple between two men though because many of my cousins are are, are gay uh, and they're lesbians and i've had friends that are gay but that's when i was younger and i never saw them in this adult relationship so for me in all intents and purposes it was like my first introduction to gay men being in a very committed relationship so it was an interesting kind of endeavor for me to kind of embark on with them many times i I would say that it was pretty abusive the relationship because both of them weren't fully healthy. I love Keith. He's one of my favorite characters. And I really like David too. So I always rooted for them, but it never really felt right. And I think just like what you said, Romeo, about when he said, you know, this house is great. I'll give you all my savings and mm-hmm. we can buy go out. And that is when like, it was like a sigh of relief if you've really liked both of them as characters. Right. Like, this is going to work. Keith is giving it his all. And it took Keith to give it his all before David was able to do that, too. And so Keith was really kind of the unsung hero, I think, in the series for at least David's character development and whatnot. Uh, this is the first romantic relationship between two gay men that I've seen on television that is very intense. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, not, but not in the sense of like emotional connection, but just like sexual connection. It's just like, holy right. crap, man. Like, this is crazy intense. Like their open relationship that they have, which is also something you don't see a lot on television is the exploration of having an open relationship. So you can tell that the writers had the most fun writing for these two characters. Alan Ball said that the writers room wanted to break them up for season four. And Ball was like, no, we're not breaking them up, but we'll split them up and have their own stories because I think he did the right thing, too. It's like, I don't think it would have been good to break them up, uh, especially by season four when we saw them go through so much together. Right. And to suddenly just be like, "Eh, let's just break them up. Like, oh, no, that's not satisfying to me and i i totally understand as i mean it's definitely an abusive relationship and but you know it's kind of hard to navigate because it's like it's two men being very terrible to each other very mean to each other they both try so hard to work on it and where it's like with brenda and nate where i thought you know they seriously just need to stop seeing each other i don't think this is good with them with those two i was like actually i think there's hope for these two i think if they really work hard on it things can get better but with brenda and 
Nate, I just never felt that way. And don't get me started on Claire's relationships as well. And Ruth's relationships too, I thought were kind of yeah. like, well, what do we, what? This is weird, Ruth. These were the only two that I hung on to throughout the entire series run where I was like, I, I'm rooting for them. Like, I want them to work it out. I want them to have happiness. Even when they go through the whole adoption thing and then they end up adopting Darrell and Anthony and Keith has problems with it because they're kids and they misbehave. When you unpack the reasons why they misbehave the way they do, especially Darrell, is because, I mean, they're foster kids. They're expecting to be abandoned again. And Keith didn't fully understand that. And David didn't either, really. You got to grow with them as to understanding what it's like to work in a difficult relationship and what it's like to try to start a family. It's crazy because you wouldn't think that two gay men would be the most relatable couple for heterosexual sure. audience but but they are <laughs> yeah, by far. from my perspective because this was on i believe the same time as queer as folk sex in the city because we had stanford blatch yeah it was revolutionary for like straight people to see like this new thing but at the same time it sort of reinforced some of the negative stereotypes at times especially with the open relationship and then yeah. a lot of them sort of stepping out on their relationship that oh they can't be faithful or there needs to be a lot of drug use during sex. I appreciate them as a couple because in the end it all works out but there wasn't enough stable healthy relationships. Sometimes I kind of felt like the writer room were kind of rebelling over the heteronormative relationship and it's also the time where gay marriage was never in the horizon for gay people and I remember having friends that were gay was like oh we don't need to have what straight people we can do our own thing make our own rules kind of all like that rebellion against the patriarchy type thing of those what it means to be married that's mostly because of us dealing with the fact that at the time we thought we would never get the right to it's sort of frustrating not to have a committed gay couple that didn't need to sort of step out of their relationship. I'm not opposed, I'm saying like I'm, I'm a prude, I'm not opposed to like an open relationship. But to me, the open relationship was coerced and forced on by Keith because he wasn't ready to commit and they couldn't have an honest conversation. And David doing what David does with a lot of his relationships is just going along so he wouldn't be alone. And even though David was the one who wasn't okay with it, he's the one who kept breaking that boundary later after they agreed no to it. He was the one who kept flexing with it. Rewatching it now, not way back when. I'm straight, so I'm looking at this from 2021 in perspective. I'm looking at it as, yeah, this is kind of odd how they're painting this the gay couple that being portrayed the most in the series Mm -hmm. being portrayed as the one that is open that does you know the drug use like you said so it even struck me as a little bit like uh, not from the best angle but like you said like gay marriage wasn't even on the horizon at this mm-hmm. point and in in the i call for the first time i guess the montage at the end i think like 2025 when they actually get married or 2020 or something like that when they get right. married. so you see all these other deaths and all these other things happen and then that you know now i guess it was legal for them to get married when all the other straight characters sort of does that expiration it's deemed as a problem because they're straight but yet for the gay characters oh that's normal that's part of their culture why i push back I'm like, it's not part of our culture. It's actually a serious issue, which leads to a lot of horrible consequences. And I feel like the show kind of paints it was like, if you're straight, Brenda goes through this like this sexual odyssey and he's like, oh, it comes down to her being a sex addict or Nate abuses it. It's like, there's like consequences to that or there's, it's seen as, oh, that's like a negative stereotype because they're straight. But oh, gay people can do that because it's part of the culture and that's openly accepted. 
today there's more literature and there's more better representation of gay characters to know that because we identify differently, like a different sexual orientation doesn't mean we don't want the same things as our straight allies. Alan Ball is also gay. I'm sure there were multiple gay writers throughout the series run. That was just their creative choice. But no, all points are valid. Absolutely. What's also funny that I just read right now is that Jeremy Sisto auditioned for David Fisher. <laughs> and I, oh, wow. that's, <laughs> that would be an interesting casting choice. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> He was perfect for Billy, though. Oh, he was. God damn, Billy. Yeah. And it was Sam Mendes who actually connected Michael C. Hall to audition for David because Sam Mendes and Alan Ball have that connection through American Beauty. Hall was working on Cabaret on Broadway with Sam Mendes. Okay, so um, I think we should wrap up the siblings here with Claire. Now, it was funny is I'm taking a total guess here, Jamie, but you said that you felt the main character was Nate, but you said that you thought it actually was someone else. Is that someone else, Claire? By the end of the whole series, I think it's hard not to say the show was actually really about Claire more than anyone else. And I'm glad. I think she's an incredible character and her journey each season is like some pretty big steps and she doesn't ever really lose that like fiery kind of person who she was. A lot of the other characters have made these like huge dynamic changes in their lives and they try to be someone that or maybe someone different than who they used to be especially brenda nate but with claire she's like never really faltered from that same personality type i guess she's making slightly better decisions here and there i, I wonder that too if that keeping that fiery personality is for better or for worse it's hard to really at least for me it seems it's kind of hard to tell because yeah when she's trying to deal with the death of nate and she just goes off on that mother who just lost her son who um commit suicide you're just like good god claire <laughs> you know that was a lot for me to take in just seeing claire just completely explode like that and then totally cruel to uh ted she was very drunk not never an excuse right but she was like very drunk when she kind of lost it on that the soldier's mom and ted and i, I felt the same way as like ted was like the nicest guy to her and she just was saying the most mean things just to push him away there's two characters i must relate to david and Claire, especially during her art school years anita jimmy Russell. I know all of those people. That's pretty spot on. If you go into any like art theater or like movie like program, you'll recognize all those people. So when Claire left school, I thought for a minute there, I was thinking, I don't know if that was the best decision. Yeah. But when she circles back to it and realizes that there wasn't too much growth from any of those people since she left. They probably got worse, actually. Yeah, right. Yeah, it did. <laughs> she suddenly didn't feel so bad that she made the wrong decision decision or not that to me i felt was a very accurate portrayal because it's just kind of like that's an artist's life man for a lot of them there's always going to be that struggle or that that starving attention for people wanting to buy their art or trying to get the galleries and it's not an easy life and i don't think claire was ever built to be able to handle such a life so in the end i thought actually she made the right decision leaving i kind of want to push back a little bit on it because in the end she goes back to it because she ends up in this corporate job and she's not a person that cannot do because she does have a passion does have a drive and yeah yeah she grew up because she's experiencing hard difficulties i think that actually prepped her for a life in the arts because she's willing to do things she wasn't willing to do say like a year ago when she was in art school or to make a living while pursuing her dream but at the time like she just stopped making art altogether she's not really an artist at least at least that's the way i took it i mean i'm not saying photography isn't an art but i mean like she just wasn't as creative as she thought she was she stopped feeling
feeling inspired. She came up with one good idea with Russell's help, I mind you. And she just kept recycling that same idea over and over again because she couldn't come up with something that was, I guess you could call profitable to the gallery owner. It wasn't really so much a rut for me. It was just more like she's not really built for this. She could be a great photographer. She doesn't need art school to be a great photographer. That's very common, at least in the art programs I was involved in, where you get all these praise, you get like, here's how to do all of this different techniques. And you never see it that you can apply it outside of that educational environment. It's like as soon as you graduate, you're now left to your own devices. Because there isn't a class on how to network, how to reach out to agents, how to reach out to galleries, or how to put on your own show. What do you need in terms of insurance, publicity? In a way, I always feel like a lot of these programs sort of set you up to fail unless you're a clear favorite, which we saw with Olivier. Because there's something that Olivier recognizes in Claire that he sort of got her connection to this job in New York, which of course fell through because the company folded. He noticed yeah. that it's just good for her to get the experience, like you guys were saying, because it was a photo stock company, you know? So it wasn't like she was going to be artistic in that, really, you know? It's something that she's taking from her educational program and applying it to the real world, where I feel like a lot of the time there isn't a way to translate what you earned in those programs and apply it. And I feel like that was the most realistic thing that anyone's ever been honest about. Because usually you have shows like Glee, like, oh, you're going to Nayada? Guess what? You're now on Broadway. Shut up. I felt her pain making those realizations. Even throughout the series, it doesn't feel like her relationship with her brothers grows too much. I don't know. It's hard to say. Like, I think they get just to more of like an understanding point in their relationships more than like anything else. It does feel throughout the series that Claire's just kind of remains on her own journey than being associated with the other family members. And just when you think sometimes that she mends her relationship with Ruth and that they're going to like build this good mother-daughter bond, something happens and it breaks again for one reason or another. Ruth slapping Claire at the wedding, I think, was just like one of those like shocking moments because it just comes out of nowhere. I guess that's just more on Ruth than really on Claire. Claire didn't do anything wrong. And Ruth even blows up at Claire at Nate's 40th birthday party mm-hmm. and just like kidding around your mom talking about you know, a sibling and she like snaps at her. Ruth is probably the second worst person in the series for me. She's both very loving and kind and giving, but also just super selfish and self-absorbed and everything always becomes about her. And even in the final episodes where Claire is excited about this job opportunity, she screams out all excited. And granted, Nate just died and David and Ruth are kind of catatonic at the kitchen table. And she says, you know, mom, I, I got offered this job. And Ruth is just sitting there saying, oh, that's great. And like, you know, just very monotone and very, very comically, uh, David is like using his favorite yellow bowl of cereal for the first time in like 20 years, talking into the bowl. And he's like, you couldn't pay me to live in New York. Poor Claire is like finally about to branch out and no one cares. And then she gets the call that she actually got hired and she yells out to her mom, I got it. And her mom's sitting in the TV little, like, I guess, front room. And she doesn't even like acknowledge it. As we've talked about, she felt like she was like this, the invisible child and kind of cast away. But that's really kind of how it was in, in a lot of ways. And they, they have some really good touching moments between Ruth and Claire throughout the series. And you think you're at that point where Ruth is going to be awesome to her. And Ruth usually ends up doing something to prevent it. Even if it was on Claire, not on Claire 
because Ruth is the mother. And I always felt bad for Claire in that respect. Kind of all of them. Even towards the end when David was really grieving hard, probably hardest from Nate dying, Ruth made it all about herself and was like kind of blaming David. And David had to tell her, look, mom, I lost him too. They were even kidding with Nate before he died in the hospital when they didn't think they thought he was going to be, you know, okay. They said they're kind of glad their mom wasn't here because they'd all have to take care of her throughout it. That's kind of why I'm saying I think Ruth was one of the, the worst characters in terms of like selfishness. Does this circle back on what David mentioned about the siblings? They kind of took care of each other in a sense. I think they got that emotional support. Claire has been the first one to support Nate and David in certain aspects of their life because she's the first one to find out and she's always accepted them for who they are and never really blamed them or made them feel guilty about their life choices. Where Ruth is a woman who was raised in a certain time frame where there's the right way to do things and the wrong way to do things. So she lashes out at Claire and she uses Claire dropping out of college as an excuse for her horrible treatment of her. Ruth unfairly puts a lot of expectations on Claire to live the life she wishes she could have had. And that's probably why she resents Sarah so much too, because Sarah's living the life that she didn't. Yeah, Ruth is a complicated character. I wouldn't call her the worst. As much as David is trapped, I feel Ruth is trapped too, because you clearly see her wanting to change and have some sort of personal growth. And I think she sort of achieves that by the end of the series during the montage, living the life that she always wanted to live with Bettina. Like she finally gets to be free. But unfortunately, poor Ruth is literally jumping from one relationship to the next because she doesn't know who she is as a person without being a wife or a mother. When they're all cheersing Nate, at the dinner table in the, the new house, you know, that's redone by Keith and David. Mm-hmm. They all say to Nate, to Nate, to Nate. And you get to Ruth and she goes to my firstborn. Like she had to change it. Every time I see that episode, it kind of irritates me a little bit because everyone else said to Nate. And then after that, the two boys say, you know, to Uncle Nate, she had to make it about her perspective. And that may not be a purposeful thing in the writing, but for whatever reason, that always resonates with me. As- I don't think it was so much about it making it about herself. It's just the acknowledgement that yes while they're celebrating Nate which also acknowledges that there's a sadness to it that she lost one of her children. I can see that. I can definitely see both sides of it. Let's see. We touched all the Fishers. Are there any other main characters that you want to touch on? Yeah, I think my unlikely favorite is probably Brenda. She's dealt with a lot of awful things. I was very careful when I said Ruth was the second worst character in the show. Right. By far, the worst character is Margaret Chenoweth, Billy and Brenda's mom. She's just this wicked human being, right? There's, oh, there's no redeeming quality of her, really. And she's awful to them. She's awful to everyone. Even in the last few episodes, episodes she's trying to alienate Ruth with Maya and like take over mm-hmm. everything about her is just vindictive and just like negative and she's the shrink too which is so weird I think Brenda her story arc is almost as big as Claire's maybe even bigger because she went through a way worse childhood than Claire did and she's coming around to actually being okay with not being loved and being in a loving relationship and still taking care of the daughter of the guy who she left him for and now wait well, I guess I guess he did cheat on Brenda with Lisa. And now mm-hmm. she's taking care of their baby when he said, I don't want to be with you. I want to be with Maggie, basically. And on his deathbed. 
Yeah, on his deathbed. And so there was just so many awful things that have happened to her. And, you know, she made some awful choices, but I think it's pretty spectacular that she survived this show and it really closes up with her. A lot of, aside from Claire closing things up, it had all the other characters had to deal with her. It was her deciding and saying, you know, to David and Keith, you know what? Yeah, take your time, pay me. I, I, my dad left me a lot of money. I don't need anything. Pay me when you can for Nate's share of the business. And she helped them that come true. Then she helped Rico and Vanessa get what they wanted. She really reached out. And even though Claire was, or I should say Ruth rather, was being kind of awful to her, she reached out and showed her the photos. And, and now they get along and they're like this family still. And it was her like character development to be able to get her to that point where she could be big enough to kind of be the glue that's keeping a lot of them together. I just found myself liking her and disliking her so much throughout the series. It was kind of like a Jamie Lannister kind of character. Mm. Like, oh, this is the worst person in the world. And then they do some like really noble things that you're like, oh, wow, she's probably one of my favorites. They did a lot of rehab, no pun intended, with um, Brenda. And I don't know much about sex addiction to say whether or not that's an accurate portrayal of what someone goes through. But I will say in terms of alienating this character to an audience and then doing the hard work of showing her progress to making her likable again. That's something really hard to do, especially in an era of television that we're not used to. Because nowadays, yeah, you're right, we have plenty of Jamie Lannisters where you have that sort of relationship with a character. But in terms of when this show came out, that was a tough thing to do. But I will have to ask you, Jamie, was Margaret at her worst with Bernard or Olivier? Bernard. Because that's when she did some of the awful things to their kids. Like Charlotte, light and dark. Yeah, that, that, that whole storyline. So cool. And they keep bringing it up as a, as a great joke. And Brenda hates it, you know, so she's yeah. always... Uh, right. But yeah, I would say Bernard because he's the one who enabled yeah. Margaret to be that kind of mother towards their kids and just in general, just be the kind of person that she is. I, and that's a really good point about Brenda, how there's this trajectory of she's just really frustrating. And but at the end, like she really changes a lot and she's able to actually become the mother that I think none of us ever thought she could be, especially towards one kid. And it's not even hers. The only thing about Brenda that I wish she was better at, I just wish she was just better better to people yeah. and, and not not just like her relationship with Nate or Joe, but also to her friends, like that prostitute she was friends with. She wasn't a good friend to her and to the therapist friend that she makes towards the end of the series. She wasn't that good of a friend to her because Brenda is just so self-absorbed. Like, I get it. You have so much going on in your life, but do you constantly need to talk about yourself? Mm. <laughs> like, my God, don't you know how friendships work? Like, it's mm. give and take, you know, Like, but she was always just giving, 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 giving. And it's just it's a lot to take so i could totally mm. get why people just were like i don't want to be friends with you anymore you're just a lot <laughs> yeah and her therapist friend just had to put her in her place and then she was there for after nate died so it seemed like they were still friends but she had to just like yell at brenda and say you know it's you you're the problem <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> brenda's always in this like this weird spot where she is like family but she isn't it seems like the fishers become the audience surrogate sometimes when they're yelling at brenda because i'm pretty sure we all agree when people call out Brenda. That reminded me what you were saying about how I think it was either the last episode or second to last when Ruth is leaving Ed Bagley Jr. at going camping. She's like finding her way back and walking on this path 
and she has that daydream where all of her ex-lovers are popping up and she has this walking stick but she's acting like a shotgun and she's like uh-huh. it's all like little thing and it's all like animated and even Nathaniel pops up and she just like smiles at him and then like shoots him so that's like her like way of like finally getting past this sort of relationship when Ruth is with George rather she she draws that line saying you know uh-huh. that I love you and you're a great and kind person but we can't live together that's like finally when she like right graduated to like having battle injuries uh okay so any other characters we should touch on rico i think is an interesting very one-dimensional character like he's likable but he's very one-dimensional he has that outlook and he kind of becomes this like token hispanic guy where he's always talking about how hispanic culture is and how it's not you don't really get to see a whole lot of depth from him outside of him like developing his skill sets taking this financial step forward with the business and he wants to be on his own when he cheated on vanessa other than that you really don't see a whole lot of like growth from him but i like the character a lot it's just hard to think like how much can we really talk about him just because it is kind of that way and i think a lot of the other characters that i i want to bring up kind of are the same way like i think joe was a solid character but like pretty one-dimensional and like i think the show did a great job at all of the characters i thought were well cast and well like established even it's just some of them you didn't really you don't have the time to get in all into all of them when you have these six seven dynamic main characters over the the course of not many episodes of the ancillary characters i think billy would probably be the one that i would want to spend some time talking about because mm-hmm. he was obviously damaged by his awful parents and it's weird because we keep saying oh that you know the fishers needed therapy well look at the therapy family right like they're even worse <laughs> it's so, true, right? poor billy right and but then again he's like this vile guy sometimes he brings some of the funniest moments of the whole series for me like when he met ted at brenda's place and he just like holds ted's hand in the beer bottle in a weird way like in a very phallic way and he yeah. looks at him and he's like i am so jealous of you <laughs> and then ted's just like i'll be right back yeah <laughs> even when he shows up kind of manic at the 40th birthday party for nate he's like spinning out of control and like telling inappropriate things and he was always a sort of comic relief even when he was spinning out of control it was, it was a great acting job by jeremy sister for sure you know they always teased it throughout the entire series is billy and brenda is there some weird incestual connection <laughs> there yeah. you wonder like did they fool around when they were younger or something like that like they always teased it and out of all the daydreams and dream sequences the one of those two kissing together yeah. they got me i actually thought that was happening and then no. when she woke up, i was like oh thank god yeah. <laughs> right so the writers do this amazing nod to one of my favorite top five movies of all time a movie called bunny lake is missing at the end of season one maybe not the last episode but one of the later episodes she's watching bunny lake is missing when billy breaks in i don't know if you've ever seen the movie but it's about this like really creepy relationship between a brother and sister and I don't want to spoil it because it legitimately is one of the best movies ever but it has like maybe some incestuous like feeling to it and it's made in the 60s so it's like it was black and white movie and and beautifully shot and she's watching it and because I know the movie I was like oh my god this is hitting the nail right on the head of what I've picked up Mm -hmm. already about Billy and Brenda's relationship if you haven't seen the movie like that probably glossed over some people you probably still see the obviously telegraphs of this inappropriate relationship but Mm -hmm. that one made me think that i agree with you there david that something probably happened when they were younger maybe they're not even consciously you know aware of it and it's it's more of an implicit thing that they feel but it certainly was something that stood out to me in that first season brenda pretty much raised herself and then she had to raise her brother that's how i interpret it like that whole family dynamic and in some parts brenda also was the parent to her mother and father so i just looked 
Richard Jenkins plays Nathaniel Fisher in only 21 episodes. I like, you know, every time he pops in, it's a value. I think that was smart on their part because you didn't want to oversaturate that character because it's not really him. It's a facsimile of the character, how people remember him. So we talked about a lot of high points throughout the series. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you would like to mention, Jamie? Give me a second here. I'm going to go back to my little notes here. For me, I was going to bring up the opening scene deaths. If I had to pick a favorite, my favorite is definitely the one of the woman who saw the blow up dolls and thought they were people being <laughs> ascended into heaven and she got hit by the car. That one for me was my favorite. <laughs> there were two episodes that stand out when David gets hijacked. It is one of the most intense episodes I've seen in a long time. I'm still kind of speechless about my reaction to it. I like that episode. It certainly set up that whole season. That's when David becomes the main character, at least for that season. That story arc was is quite important. The guy who plays his attacker, a little stint on house as being this private investigator that I don't know his name. I don't even I don't even know like Michael Weston. What else is he in? Because they're the only two roles I, I can really think of. But I love him. I thought I thought he was great in both. He played a cop in Garden State. Oh uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah and Olivia Benson's half brother. Sorry, big Law and Order fan. Yeah, he's one of those working actors who's just been mm-hmm. popping in things for like twenty years. Uh, he was in an episode of Burn Notice, which is kind of funny because the main character remember notice his name Michael Weston going back to your thing about like the opening death scenes I have one that isn't really an opening death scene but it's it's a death of a minor character that they sequence the white screen and show the birth and death years first one that was like wow like oh my gosh it ended up becoming Rico's magnum opus was the woman who was partying with her girlfriends and they're in a little <gasps> stand up oh. the street sign or whatever it was it was like a traffic light and that one was like wow so that was one of the shocking ones and like not to say it was cool but like yeah. the one you know almost comical in a way it was over graphic but then the other one was when nate really starts to find his role as the funeral director is when he went and spoke with the guy who is just dying of i think he had pancreatic cancer at a very young age and he just like doesn't want to deal with anything and they're like mm-hmm. he already paid and everything like that and, and nate promises him, i'll come see you every day even when all the crap was happening with lisa and so many bad things nate shows up and he's always there that minor character you know like death scene that that was when he passed away and Nate's just like holding them crying saying you know it's gonna be okay it's gonna be okay that certainly got me other than the finale that may have been the heaviest part of the series for me so the first set that you were talking about was Chloe and Brian York episode 8 of season 1 and I think the fellow you were talking about was um, Michael John Piper which was season 2 episode 3 I believe right in the same area looks like episode 8 or 9 somewhere in there when Gabriel's brother finds the gun that's the other one I was trying to think of. I know there was another one. That was pretty... I like Gabriel as a character, too. I mean, he was kind of a loser, obviously, but mm-hmm. I liked him as a character. I think he's a good actor. That whole sequence was like... Whew. Yeah, that episode was tough. And then, of course, the following episode, because Gabriel just freaking spun out of control. For me, the other episode that sticks out, the one where this woman who lives alone, like she chokes on her like TV dinner, and no one came to her funeral. And it was up to pretty much Ruth to plan this funeral, even though she did have her intake sheet already filled out. And in a way, it sort of validates the theme of the show that every life matters. I 
think that's exemplified the most when the serial killer, the guy who goes into his old office and shoots everyone, they have like one of the people who were killed there and they also have the guy who shot himself. Rico's like, no, we can't do this. And David's like, no, they're grieving too. They lost their son. Like David puts his foot down and says, no, we're servicing all people. They'll be on different days and they won't ever see each other. Oddly enough, the shooter was played by Matt Ross, who plays a lot of deranged characters on TV. Oh, Matt Ross from Silicon Valley. That's always a tough situation too because even though like this person did this horrendous thing he was still loved by people you providing a service for that family to help them grieve doesn't excuse his actions yes he did a horrible thing we shouldn't excuse what he or she has done but also show some respect to the family they don't condone what their family member did and i kind of like how they sort of explore that dynamic because usually when you cover something like this on television it's always just one-sided we always see it from a certain lens they did a pretty good job dealing with both sides of that issue that's the great thing about six feet under though all these like one shot the person who dies and they're, now they're doing the funeral for you know every episode not every episode but probably at least like 95 percent of the time that's what happens and they're all like really good actors and a lot of them you see from other things you may not know their names but they all do a really good job and i don't ever really think on the whole show 63 episodes that i feel like someone wasn't cast well one high point i'm so caught up on all the deaths at the introduction of the each episode because they got to the point where you could tell they were having a lot of fun with these. You know, you think it was going one direction, but then it wound up going a different direction. For example, David's ex fiance Jennifer, her dad, who gets electrocuted, <laughs> struck by lightning. And you think he's going to like attack this woman in an elevator, but that's not what happens. He just walks out of the building in a rainy day, puts out his, his umbrella, and then boom, lightning strikes. <laughs> and you're just like, whoa, that came out of nowhere. That was crazy. Or the guy who gets chopped in half from the elevator. That was, oh, that was a great one. That was the hard one to watch. <laughs> the ex-wife was like, you know, making fun of him. Like, how could that happen? And Nate flips out. He's like, he was saving people. Like, and he like put her in her place. That was a great one. And for someone, the one that I felt I was some reason felt really satisfied by was the old guy who ate the peach, which I assume he was allergic yeah. to or something. He was he, diabetic. He was severely yeah. diabetic. Okay. Severely diabetic. And he, and he died, but he just had like a smile on his face yeah. when he put it in his mouth. You know, <laughs> it's just like, yeah. oh, it's just oddly satisfying to watch an old man choose his death that way. <laughs> they were so catty and so petty. So like, like, like he probably wanted to get out of there. Like he had it. I'm thinking the whole time, like he could have just a little bit, like don't deprive this man of every simple joy in his life and then ridicule him. And then yeah. eat it all in front of him too. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Oh, and let's like, not forget the woman who got hit in the head by a golf ball. Uh, it turned yeah. out to be Tracy's aunt <laughs> to kind of tie up her story arc in the series. And, and who killed her was the woman with that come from that company um, put the pictures out of business which was all yeah. great Gilardi's <laughs> replacement uh, Mitzi we talked about fulfilling deaths and you, you guys may burn me at the stake for this but the most oddly fulfilling and satisfying death was Lisa's I couldn't stand Lisa not that she died I wasn't happy she died I was happy that after we found out she died that she was not the person who she portrayed herself to be at all and like so I felt validated by being annoyed with her so much and disliking her character not just like her choices but just her personality I didn't like so I felt vindicated when it was revealed that she's not who we thought she was not to say she deserved to die brutally right? right. I just hated how she treated Nate when they got married and stuff and how like just passive aggressive she is and like when you meet her up in Seattle she's talking with the aunt Claire's like what are you doing she's like I'm, I'm trying to convince the aunt to leave because she doesn't want to kill him and then when you see her again in, in LA when her and you know Nate are married she's eating steak 
things are better in her life, she's like abandoned some of her principles. She was unrealistically hung up on Nate. Like she did say that it was destiny for the two of them to be together. She had her own issues that she needed to work through and she kind of took it out on Nate. Neither one of them are good at communicating what they needed. There's enough blame to go around to both parties. Yeah, it's just a straight up bad relationship. Cheating on Nate with your brother-in-law, like your sister's husband, that's so messed up, man. And it happened way before her and Nate too. Like it was clearly established. Hoyt is such a boner too. Like up until that point, he's just like, this guy says stupid stuff. And you're not just hurting Nate, you're hurting your sister too. Like, so yeah, all around, it was just awful. All right, well, Jamie, what is one episode you would show someone to get them interested in Six Feet Under? First episode. I agree. That's a really great pilot. I think it's a great starting point for anybody. You learn everything you need to know about whether or not you're going to like the show and you and you learn everything you need to know about the characters and whether or not you're probably going to like them. Too. So were there moments you ever had your doubts when watching the series? Not at all. Like I said, this is my favorite show of all time. Like watching it, I still thought that like it was going to be like the first time I watched it. I was really impressed how, which is going to lead into the next question, how easy this show flowed. I thought I was going to like need to take breaks in between episodes, uh-huh. but I was just sitting there churning out three, four, five in a row. And not because I was up against the clock. I wasn't. I was just enjoying myself. Uh-huh. I was shocked how well I was enjoying myself. How should you watch it? Should you binge it all? Or were you the type who liked to pace yourself and watching it? I've watched it a dozen times. And other than the first time I'd binge it, my mom and stepdad just watched it for the first time. I think my mom watched it in like less than 10 days. Boom, boom, boom. Like she was addicted. Uh-huh. I told her that it's a pretty heavy show. So you may need to pause between. I, for me, that kind of stuff doesn't bother me. You guys know that I the topic of death is something that I'm interested in in an academic way. So for me, it's like, oh, no, it's not too hard, not too heavy. For my mom, I thought maybe it would be. And she just plowed right through it. If my mom's capable of doing that, I think most of you, and this is my little way of saying hi to my mom too because I know she's going to want to listen to this podcast because she loved the show so much. I think it's something you certainly can binge but maybe take a couple pauses if it gets a little too dark for some people. Alan Ball even says that if you're going to watch it he doesn't recommend watching it in one sitting which I don't know anyone who would try but he said like give yourself two weeks to watch the entire series. (laughs) That's a good frame I think two weeks. I say it's like every episode they rip your heart out and sew it back together for you. It's an underrated dark comedy too. There's so many funny moments (laughs) let's say someone doesn't want to commit to the entire series do you have a recommended viewing order to help with the experience i don't think you can really watch this out of order or in any other way i think give the first season a shot and if you don't like it you're not going to like it i don't think it's going to probably improve you i would say you probably have to watch this in order yeah i agree i think watching the first season is definitely the best way to gauge whether or not you should continue with the series and then after that i think if you enjoy season one you're just going to want to keep watching that's just the way it goes it stays heavy, but it does kind of loosen its grip a little bit. Like it does have a little bit more fun with the characters. There is a little bit more comedic moments and there is more themes to explore other than death. If people are worried that it's just going to be so heavy every episode, like season one can feel like. From my perspective, I thought it did lighten up a lot in certain spurts. And I don't think there's any natural stopping point during the mm-hmm. series anyway. So if you keep yeah. going, you're going to need to finish. <laughs> yeah. The way they achieved that after C 
season one was having those seasonal people who came back in other seasons, but like Kathy Bates, like I thought she was incredible in the series. I think she did like 10 or 12 episodes. She directed a bunch too, some of the better directed episodes. That cut things up a little bit. She was a, a breath of fresh air, so to speak. Rain Wilson coming in for a whole season and that was like really unique. Uh, they actually overlapped a little bit. So I think they do a good enough job at introducing new people at the right times where things aren't the same and you would probably feel a little bit lost in some of the storylines if you came in anywhere other than the beginning. Do you need other material to enrich the show's viewing experience? You don't need anything, but, and I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I, I mentioned before that, you know, understanding terror management theory w- would help a lot with The Good Place, certainly with this. And I would say that the reverse happened for me. Me enjoying this show so much in my youth really developed me into being interested into existential thought, but then also studying what I do study in terror management theory. Mm-hmm. I think this show is the perfect like media portrayal of what I'm interested in psychologically. So again, terror management theory, even to just Google it and read a little bit about it, a book that I would plug would be uh, The Warm at the Core, which is the codified book on terror management theory. It's really easy to read. It's written like in a pop psychology way, but it's all based on research. Reading that would probably help you understand a lot of the dynamics that some of these characters struggle with and go with and maybe help explain a little bit that a family who is professionally helping people grieve with death every day, all day, that they're just so awful at dealing with death themselves. I think understanding terror management theory would help maybe understand those characters a little deeper, but it's not necessary. Very cool. So we have a couple books that are Six Feet Under related. Well, actually one book and then one short episode. So Six Feet Under in Memoriam, which was a eulogy for the series that featured actors, producers, and writers from the show talking about their experience working on the series. It's about a half hour long. I found it on YouTube. I don't know if it's on HBO Max, but at least it's on YouTube. So if people want to search for that, yeah, Six Feet Under in Memoriam. And there's this book by Alan Ball and Jill Soloway called Six Feet Under, Better Living Through Death, which is a history of the Fishers and their extended family and from Nate and David's childhood to the disappearance of Lisa. It also covers major events and daily routines that are revealed through the series, through the characters' personal photographs, correspondence, and memorabilia. It also includes Nathaniel's letters to Ruth from Vietnam, and it has Claire and Billy's instant messages, excerpts from Charlotte Light and Dark and Nathaniel and Isabel, and some other things. Yeah, pretty cool. cool. I so want to read that. I want to read the excerpts from um, Charlotte Light and Dark. (laughs) This is interesting. So would you want a reboot or a continuation series? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You don't fuck that up. Perfect series finale ever. I don't know anyone who's seen it who hasn't said it's the best season finale. Yeah. Ever. Man, yeah, I've watched that ending so many times since I watched it for the first time a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. It's just so moving. And I, when I watched it for the first time, I did shed some tears. It's just a very satisfying moment of watching this series of the last few weeks. And then one time when I was rewatching it on YouTube, you know, trying to do some uh, note taking, I freaking bawled. <laughs> it's so hard it was just like my god man this shit hits happy like sad like it makes you think about your own family and your own struggle yeah. like, it's like a ball of emotion and when claire is getting in the car in that new prius she pops in the the, the cheesy what you think is going to be a cheesy song you hear sia come on and right away i'm like fuck my life like this is like, <laughs> <laughs> like so you have nine right. minutes of like unabated heart shredding left and it's just right. like boom 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 like good things happy things sad things it's just like one after another it, it's so rapid fire for yeah. me, what got me was when Nate tells Claire that it's already gone. 
And I thought, okay, I'm like, I'm ready to get wrecked. <laughs> and you <laughs> see him go. jogging in the rearview mirror, and he slowly just, he you know, fades away. Yeah. Oh. God damn it! God damn it! Oh, and then when Keith gets shot, I'm like, no. <laughs> right. For me, the most tragic, and it's something I always think of when I see Claire on her deathbed, is she surrounded with such these beautiful memories and pictures. Of course, that classic shot she takes of Ted. She has cataracts, so she can't see anymore. I'm like. God damn it. Why are you doing this to Claire? 102 years old. Crazy. So we're winding down here. Briefly discuss who you think could enjoy Six Feet Under. Okay, there's going to be some people who probably can't tolerate the heaviness. But I don't want to say that because it may scare people away because I think most people who think they couldn't would actually love the show. But I do think there's probably some people that the heaviness of it would probably be a little too much. If you've just experienced loss and death, I think it's actually a good show to watch. Uh, Most people may turn away from it. It's certainly a show that's not for everyone, but I would say that most people who actually do enjoy it, they probably are going to view it similarly that we, as we are, that it's, if not the best, but you know, one of the better shows you've ever seen in your life. I think it reaches a lot of different crowds. It just, it may take a little nudge from someone to watch the first episode. Yeah, I definitely know what you're saying there because the show definitely does an amazing job introducing the conversation about death and being okay with death. I mean, after the show aired, people were starting to make funeral plans ahead of time. Right. You know, like it, it really opened people's eyes to being prepared for death and not be afraid of it, um, which I think is great. Funeral directors have commented saying that the show was a really great portrayal of their workplace and portraying funeral directors as not just like emotionless beings. It's like, no, these are people who feel. These are people who really care about death and and giving you that funeral experience that um, Mm -hmm. how to say goodbye and and the best way that they can give you. And morticians have said that they did a pretty good job of doing their homework of how to prepare a body. I think at educational level, you know, there's there's a lot of value to get from six feet under. But I also say if you're a fan of writing and plotting a a character arcs, no pun intended, no pun pun intended, I promise. That wasn't a joke. Characters every episode. Right. (laughs) In terms of like character arcs, this is a show you should be studying and dissecting and see like deconstructing, reconstructing it because it does really well. I mean, we talked about this show in my playwriting class a lot in terms of character development and how each of the characters react off of each other and also in terms of great acting too i feel like it's a show like if i were teaching script writing i would show them the pilot any student that takes social psychology with me or takes it online for our our whole university i developed it for online and i I implement terror management theory and we have to read a book and stuff and most of the students who have reservations about it and who contact me because i always say if if you have reservations let me know but most of them who either experience death recently you know in a loved one or they're just like scared of death they're the ones who always are the ones who said reading the book and talking about terror management theory was so life-changing in a positive way for them. And all my students all end up saying the same thing. That like It sounded like it was going to be doom and gloom, but it really was about life and about not just surviving, but finding meaning in life. And that's what this show really is too, I think. So at the surface, it's about death, but it's about death and life really, and about right. how to live a more fulfilling life. If you're turned away by all the doom and gloom that we were talking about so far, or just the premise of it, I would say give it a shot because I think it's going to probably be more impactful for the people who had those reservations 
reservations going into it, to be honest. Do you have any suggestions for similar shows or franchises that people might also enjoy? Pushing Daisies, a little more zany, right? But I think some of the same, not messages, I guess themes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That was one of ours, actually, that we yes. listed was Pushing Daisies. And another Brian Fuller show we listed was Dead Like Me. Dead Like Me is definitely supernatural, but it has like just not too far away from reality sort of feel. And mm-hmm. with Six Feet Under, it's you barely go in that direction, but you're pushed a little bit with some of what's going on and talking to dead people and things like that. Another one we have is The Leftovers. I have not seen yet. That's cute. Oh, okay. I thought, you, oh, wow. I'm surprised. I thought you may have seen The Leftovers. I've only seen the first two seasons. I still actually haven't completed the series. I will say with The Leftovers, I couldn't get past season one. It was hard. Because unlike Six Feet Under, where Six Feet Under seems like it lines up a bit, The Leftovers just leans into <laughs> the heaviness even more as the series goes on. There's that Justin Throw link as well. Yeah. I would say we mentioned it in the series, but Big Love. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Big Love is a good one. I didn't get a chance yeah. to mention it to Romeo, but I thought that might have been a good suggestion. I've never seen the series, but I thought it, it might be a good so suggestion. Good. I think, honestly, that Big Love is a top five HBO show. I think it's that good. And it was, I would say, how Six Feet Under is darkly humorous sometimes, but like probably a little bit more dramatic than it is humorous. Mm-hmm. I would say the opposite is the true of Big Love until the last couple seasons. Then it starts to get very dark. I promise you, David, I promise you that you will love that series. Oh, hey. We did it. We talked about Six Feet Under. <laughs> now the podcast is going to flash forward. <laughs> it's like how we all die. <laughs> You're just going to see me just slump over on the microphone. <laughs> that's, oh, boy, that's dark. Um, <laughs> it's appropriate for the, the show they're talking about. True. Well, Jamie, we want to thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you so much. I had an awesome time. I'm glad you were able to come back, and we definitely hope that you're going to make time to come back down the future. Absolutely. All right. With all that being said, uh, listeners, stay tuned for Final Thoughts. Thoughts and mailbag. Welcome back. So happy to have Jamie back. This was, I would say, a very prolonged wait because we really wanted to have him back. But like we talked about in the episode, we just really wanted to watch Six Feet Under from front to back. And this was actually the longest recording that we did before the cuts that I had to make. Unfortunately, I left a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor, but I just had to do it. I'm sorry, guys. But again, yeah, it was so fun to have Jamie back. And we talked with him after the show and we hoped that have a quicker turnaround time on having him back on the show because he loves being on the show and he's so great to interact with. Hey, they want to keep coming back. We're going to let them keep coming back. Right. (laughs) That's our motto. Like, like I'm not going to fight them. Right. (laughs) So what do you think of the episode? Uh, Any closing thoughts before we move on? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I I expressed this before. Um, I'm just embarrassed that I slept on the show so long as I did. I'm grateful to Jamie who suggested this show and said, hey, let's do it to give me a reason to finally do the thing I couldn't do on my own. Yeah, absolutely. And typically when I rewatch shows, I have someone to rewatch it with. Mm -hmm. And I got to find someone to rewatch the show with me because I just adored the show. I really did. And I would happily rewatch it again with somebody if they're willing to sit with me and watch 63 episodes. (laughs) Just like Game of Thrones. I can't tell you how many times I rewatched Game of Thrones simply because someone hadn't watched it yet. And I was like, I'm just going to sit on the couch and watch these episodes with you. I 
can't get enough of this. And Six Feet Under, it's almost right there with me, man. It's mm-hmm. awesome. I love the show. Okay, so moving on, we do have a few things that we just want to correct ourselves on, or at least we didn't have the information on us when we were discussing it. So we talked about the character that assaulted David and hijacked the van and took him on that crazy ride. We couldn't quite pull the name that the character Michael Weston played. That character's name is Jake. Jamie wasn't sure what year Keith and David got married. He was way off. The year they actually got married was in 2009. So in real life, they'd be celebrating their 11 year anniversary. I I looked it up. It was a legal marriage in 2009 and Father Jack married him after Father Jack said he promised the church he would never marry a gay couple. That's right. I forgot to mention that in our discussion, but I really wanted to mention here in our final thoughts. (laughs) Jamie mentioned that Kathy Bates directed a bunch of episodes. She directed five episodes. I just wanted to point that out because I actually didn't know Kathy Bates was much of a director, but she's done her fair share of television Mm -hmm. directing. Very cool. I love Kathy Bates. I think she's one of the most underappreciated people in Hollywood of all time. Anytime she's on anything, she just makes it so much better. And she's so awesome in this show. And I really am happy that she got to sink her teeth into directing some episodes. If it weren't for Kathy Bates, I would have gave up on American Horror Story. Okay, cool. So now time to move on to the mailbag. Nothing in the mailbag, but if you ever want to reach us, you can always do it at bingeessentials at gmail.com. We would greatly appreciate any questions that you have for the show. We always like to hear from the fans. Fans have left comments on our posts, which is something that we also like to follow up on the show. So don't be afraid to reach out anyway on social media. How to do that? You can find us on Facebook at Binge Essentials, and you can find us on Instagram at Binge Essentials. So we do listen, and if you want us to cover a TV show or a franchise that you think that we're overlooking, let us know. We're interested to know what you guys want us to cover. And why not? We'll put it out there. If you feel like you're confident enough to be on a podcast, reach out to us. If you feel confident about a show that you really enjoy that would fit the criteria of what Binge Essentials is about, and you want to be on our podcast, we would love to have a conversation with you and see if we can work something out. All right. So you can reach me on Instagram at David Rocha Binge. You can reach Romeo at rmora02. You can reach me on Twitter at David Rocha Radio, and you can reach Romeo at rmora1. So with all that out of the way, it is time to talk about some announcements here. We will be taking a short break. And as much as we don't want to do it at the same time, we very much need this break. And we will be returning on July 1st. And what are we coming back with on July 1st? Jaws. That's right. We're going to be covering the film franchise of Jaws because the first Jaws is centered during Independence Day weekend. So with Independence Day weekend coming up, that is the franchise that we wanted to do. People may not know this, but there are four Jaws films and we can't wait to talk about them with you guys. Joining us to talk about Jaws will be my wife, Caitlin. She's going to be joining us. It's going to be great. She's very much looking forward to having this discussion with us. She wanted to do something with us. She just wasn't sure. So I said, hey, how about joining us for Jaws? And she said, yep, I'm absolutely waiting to chomp at the bit at that. (laughs) Nice puns, nice puns. She didn't say that, but I'm glad I said it because it is a very good pun. (laughs) You know, I don't know, David. I think you might need a bigger podcast. (laughs) I will see my ass out the door. Next week, though, I am going to drop a trailer for the show to tease what we're going to have 
going on in the summer. It'll tease not only just Jaws, but other shows and maybe, just maybe, what we will have going on this fall. So keep that in mind. So make sure you stay subscribed. And also, if you haven't rated and review us, we would greatly appreciate it if you guys did that, especially on Apple Podcasts, because it helps with the algorithms. And we are going to use this time off to work on things about how to spread more awareness about the podcast. Even though we're going to have this time off, that doesn't mean we're actually off from the show. I just need a break from editing and Romeo needs a break from making graphics and doing some watching and researching. So, all right. With all that being said, thanks for listening. Catch you guys July 1st.